This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Tuesday the 10th of October. With me today I have Stephen Julius. Stephen is an entrepreneur who looks at controlling stakes in bankrupt or distressed luxury consumer brands. Stephen is driven by his love for iconic product brands with a passion for design and craftsmanship. Stephen, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Nick. Nice to see you again. Lovely to see you and thank you so much for hosting us in your beautiful house today in London. Where should we start? Should we start maybe at school today? Happy to. Well, I was at a Benedictine monastery for five years. Um, which, funnily enough, had a huge influence on me. I suppose that I, I learnt the, the rigours of monastic life from matins all the way through to vespers, and uh, I must say it uh, has been a, an important influence o- on my life. Then on to university? On to university, yes. Um, I went up to um, Oxford where I read classics, um, a, a key uh, discipline for any, any uh, aspiring businessman. So, and yes. d- indeed, and did you find that your monastic life helped with your classics? <laughs> At one level, they're all sort of intertwined um, to the extent that um, you know, the study of Greek and Latin literature, history and philosophy uh, was certainly something that was a, a key part of any monastic existence. And then post-Oxford, time to, time to come into the financial world? Yes, I joined a company called the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, um, which was the only company that I, I worked for. I was a, a young analyst um, and uh, learnt really the key elements of competitive strategy analysis, which uh, has also served me well in my investing career. So you still use the Boston box now? I still look at that famous quadrant um, with cash cow and, and all the other elements of it. Uh, and it's certainly a framework for thinking about businesses that has been incredibly useful. And was, was Boston an intriguing and, and, and fun place to work? It's a fantastic place to work, full of young, bright uh, individuals from uh, many, many backgrounds and various disciplines. They weren't all economists and mathematicians. There were a few uh, classicists, there were people who had studied art, there were people from every sphere of life there. Uh, and I found it an exhilarating environment. Uh, we did a lot of travel. I was very focused on countries like Italy and Spain because of my Italian background. Uh, my father was a Londoner, but my mother was uh, an Italian born in Milan. And so I got to draw a lucky straw going to uh, Italy very regularly and to Spain for our projects with, with clients. And then you think that that was almost, almost your private equity apprenticeship, do you see? Is that how you would place it? There's no doubt about it that the combination of uh, BCG thinking about businesses and how an individual business was placed within specific market, within a specific competitive environment, um, was a great foundation for thinking 
very quickly about businesses. When you're buying businesses out of bankruptcy, you really don't have the time to commission someone to do a thousand page report um, or you can't get one of the big four to do a, a detailed study. You very often have to make judgments based on a combination of quick analysis and, and intuition. And I think BCG, together with my time at Harvard Business School, were really quite useful in, in, in helping me develop um, that framework for thinking about a business. And then how did you practically put in the experience from, from Harvard to, to then post-BCG to then use that in the real world? Well, I did something rather odd. I mean, I, I started off life um, going into the world of private equity with no equity. Uh, I decided I want to work for myself. And uh, looking back on it, it was slightly absurd. Um, but the absence of equity, in a way, was the kernel of the whole idea of investing in bankrupt companies because yeah. you could buy more company for, in many cases, no money or simply the assumption of debt. And um, that's, that was how I started my business career, really. And what was your first foray into, what was your first investment on that basis? Well, the beginning wasn't, uh, it, it, it was hard, actually. I spent four years looking for a company to buy. Um, the, the first year or so in the UK, and then I found it so frustrating. It's such an overbanked um, context here in the UK that I decided to move to Italy and open uh, a small office there and look for bankrupt companies in Italy, which is pretty, at the time, was pretty frontier-like. Um, you know, Italy, wonderful as the country is, is not the easiest of, of countries to do um, to do deals, especially bankruptcy deals. Just to frame it for listeners, what uh, what year would that be? This was in 1995 when I moved over to Italy, and, and that's where I started. Uh, my first transaction was I bought the largest money exchange company in Italy um, called Exact Change. It was out of a bankruptcy of um, a UK company, um, and I bought the Italian company from the receivers here in the UK and we had offices in all the main tourist areas in Italy. And then how long did you hold that for before you exited? Well I held it for a very short period of time. I held it for about six or seven months. I had intended to use it, uh, to keep it for much longer and I bought it. Not only did I buy it out of a bankruptcy but the other reason why I was able to buy it and others were not interested in it is that it was six months before the introduction of the euro yep. and the introduction of the euro more than halved the transactions for this company. So mm -hmm. a lot of people, the combination of it coming out of a bankruptcy and being in an industry that was going to be effectively or theoretically decimated by the euro, turned others off. And I actually was able to buy it very attractively. And I had every intention of continuing to grow it. And if things went wrong, the idea was to turn it into a sort of a network of like banking um, branches. Um, but as things turned out, I was offered an attractive price for it and decided to trade it. Because a, a, an important lesson then as a young man was that I knew that I had to have a little bit of capital. Without capital, I was always going to be um, you know, begging money off third-party investors. And so at the beginning, I very often kept companies for shorter periods, say, you know, on average two-year periods. And then over time, I mean, the last business I owned, which was Chris Craft, I kept for nearly 20 years.
I guess you need to accumulate the chips in the table to be able to play at the Absolutely. table, don't you? I mean, that was a key lesson that if you're always asking for somebody else's money and always having to negotiate the terms for getting some sort of you know, share in the profits, it's a tough way to make a buck. And so I just knew that I had a, I ended up developing a, a, a clear theory in my life that I was better off buying a very small business which I controlled rather than having some tiny stake in a big company that was controlled by other people. And it was very much, you know, I centered on my desire to be, to be free, to be in control yeah. of my own destiny. Yeah. And, and then what next? What, what happened? Well, after I sold that, I um, unusually, I ended up uh, buying um, a Premier League soccer club in Italy called Vicenza Calcio, which uh, in 1997, um, this was in June 1997, and they had just won the Coppa Italia, or the equivalent of the FA Cup. Doesn't sound like a bankrupt business. Uh, well, it, it actually formed part of a bankrupt Italian textile group based in Vicenza. And when the company went bankrupt, the shareholders had fraudulently conveyanced the shares of the football club to, quote, friends of theirs, unquote. And the Italian judicial system, slow as it may be, eventually caught up with them and they uh, took control. Um, the tax authorities took control of this asset and then put it up for sale um, uh, at a, a bankruptcy auction at the Central Court in Milan in 1997. And so I, together with, um, in this case, some partners, was able to acquire control of it and um, basically managed it for two years um, during a very exciting period in which they um, not only, well, they got, not only had they won the, the Coppa Italia, but they ended up in the semi-finals of the Cup Winners' Cup beating Chelsea at home, and then we got beaten at Stamford Bridge. Um, and um, it was a wonderful experience, an exciting experience, um, uh, but it was certainly a, a hairy business, and I decided yeah. I would not want to be in football again after that. Yeah, I think Mike Ashley has the similar view, doesn't he, or did have the similar yes, view. Yes, I think he does. Um, and th that's, you know, I guess, straight a little bit away from the sort of luxury brands and, and iconic craftsmanship. Well, yeah, that, both of those transactions were a long way from what ended up uh, becoming my focus. In 1998, my next transaction involved buying an iconic Italian powerboat manufacturer called Riva, which is really the equivalent of Ferrari uh, for powerboats. Um, this was a deal that I'd originally come across in 1991 when reading the FT, and I saw an announcement from Vickers, which was a public company that mm -hmm. used to own Riva. I didn't know it at the time. They owned Riva. Rolls-Royce, Kumewa, jet propulsion engines, a whole slew of companies, as well as Challenger tanks. Um, and I had pursued Vickers on and off for several, seven years. And then eventually in 1998, I got a call from the company saying, look, we uh, were prepared to sell to you, but we're gonna give you only uh, a morning in the yard um, in Sarnico, in Northern Italy, on a beautiful lake called Lake Iseo. And then we won an offer by the end of the day. Um, and to close very quickly, and I duly did that. I was in there for the morning. By Friday afternoon, I'd made an offer, and by Tuesday, I had completed on the on, on the deal and became the owner of the company. I guess not core cool for Vickers, but had had uh, had it been going through a difficult time, Reva? Uh, Reva had lost forty percent of cumulative sales for the preceding nine years, so a really catastrophically 
unprofitable business. And um, I felt that there was a fantastic brand here. The, the problem is, was primarily a union problem, uh, a labor problem. It had about uh, 200 employees and um, the unions really control the company. And so, so is that an increase in cost? Huge cost to the business. It was really the, the main problem there. And I decided to trigger really quite a bloody um, um, strike yeah. um, with the unions in order to break the deadlock. And um, they went on strike for three months. Um, it was not easy. We had, I think on two occasions, someone came into the yard with a gun after me. Um, but uh, after three months, we managed to come to an agreement whereby they would agree to cancelling many of the aspects of their union agreement that made the costs mm-hmm. uh, on, on, you know, just too high. And we hired back absolutely everyone and set to work building a completely new range of boats, in particular uh, the Aquariba, which you see here in this room, um, which it takes its inspiration from Reba's most famous boat, the Aquarama mm-hmm. Special, yep. but is actually a composite boat made out of fiberglass with a lot of wood uh, accents uh, to try and hark back to the old boats, but while being made out of modern materials. And um, then in 2000, um, I got an offer from Permira, um, a UK private yep. equity firm that at the time owned another boat company called Ferretti. Yes. And they were about to take Ferretti public. They asked if I was interested in selling Reva. I had fallen in love with Reva. Uh, I had no intention of selling, but they made it very hard for me to refuse. Mm-hmm. And so that's what duly happened in 2000. So you, man- you managed to turn a Reap around in, in two years? Or in two? two years, we did a tremendous amount of things. We, you know, we sorted out the union issue. We opened a second yard on the coast in Viareggio because this was a company that only had two models, a 70 and an 80-foot boat being made in the middle of the mountains in yeah. northern Italy. Um, they would uh, fit out the hulls on this lake. They would then sail it across the lake. They would then sail it down the Po, Vili, uh, po River to Cremona, they would then put the deck on it and they'd sail it from Venice all the way around to Genoa. It was absolutely yep. crazy. And so by opening a new yard in Viareggio, which is um, on the Mediterranean coast of Italy, on the west coast, um, we were able to um, really rationalize production of the bigger boats. And we focused on using their old plant in Sardinica on making small boats, in particular the Aquariva, which I discussed. So fiberglass, new materials, Absolutely. I guess opened up a, a, a wider market. And what sort of production numbers would, would Reva be making when you sold it? Well, at the time, I think we were doing about 50 boats a year. But these are very, very, you know, when you're talking at the time, we had 70 and 80 foot boats. Yeah. Um, you're obviously doing, you know, much smaller run lengths. And I can't remember now when, when we left them, but um, certainly it was a decent number and um, the company has gone from strength to strength. It was a brand that deserved to stay alive. Absolutely, absolutely. And then did you take any time off, or was it, was it, what happened after Reva? I mean, it seems like a couple well, of Well, uh, just a year later, I was again sitting at my desk and uh, came across uh, a newspaper article on the sale of Chriscraft, mm-hmm. which is an iconic American brand. It was the world's biggest powerboat manufacturer for nearly 50 years. I mean, really, a, a US competitor to Reva. It was. Ironically, although Reva had very much focused on ultra-high-priced 
uh, boats. I mean, I very often make an analogy and say that Riva used to be the Bugatti Veyron uh, or, or Ferrari of, of powerboats. Um, Chris Craft, when I actually originally bought it, was doing the equivalent of you know, Fords. And my view was that I wanted to position it like a, a Bentley. Mm -hmm. So to be making in reasonable numbers um, an exclusive high-end boat without you know, taking a position as high as Riva, yeah. where the volumes were going to be much smaller. So this was a fabulous brand. Um, ironically, the, there had been historical ties between Riva and Chris Craft. Uh, Cadillac um, um, Riva um, used to buy engines from Chris Craft, because at the time Chris Craft made not only boats, but its own engines on blocks from Chrysler. And uh, the iconic turquoise color that you will see on a Riva mm -hmm. actually was originally taken from Chris Craft. It's a, oh, it's a fact yeah. that's not known by many people. Turquoise was the defining color of Chris Craft. Um, so here we have this magnificent brand that had been mismanaged for years that had actually originally been formed part of a group um, called Outboard Marine Group. It was owned by George Soros and had gone bankrupt in the downturn in 2000. It was part of a group that, that was made up of six boat brands, including um, Chris Craft, and two famous outboard engine manufacturers, Johnson mm -hmm. and Edenrood. Yep. And so on a, on a winter's morning in March 2001, I got on a plane and went to Chicago and joined a hundred other um, captains of the boating industry in the US in a, in a law in a law firm, Skadden Arps, I think, was the, was the name of the firm, in a huge room there, where they had an auction and they sold the company in pieces. And I was able to um, buy the actual shipyard of Chris Craft based in Sarasota, Florida, and in a separate transaction, um, was able to actually buy the trademarks because the Chris Craft trademarks had become separated yeah. from the actual boat. So the boat company I bought was a mere licensee of the owners of the Chris Craft trademark. And I've always been a great believer that you should only ever develop a business when you own the trademarks. Yeah. And so in a separate transaction, I was able to buy the trademarks from Rupert Murdoch's News Corp of America. Um, and we reunited trademarks with manufacturing plant after nearly 35 years of separation. I was blessed in having an amazing partner in this venture, a man called Stephen Heese, um, who was at business school with me and is today still president of Chris Craft. And we spent the next 20 years together on this amazing adventure where we grew Chris Craft from a bankrupt company to $80 million business with 500 employees yeah. making 600, 600 boats a year. Um, and it was an amazing ride. Um, you know, we ended up developing over 20 models. We had over 130 dealers. Um, you know, this was one of the great adventures of my life. Um, during that adventure, um, about five years later, um, we saw an opportunity to buy another iconic American brand called Indian Motorcycle. Mm -hmm. Indian Motorcycle was um, founded two years before Harley-Davidson in 1901. Harley was founded in 1903. Chris Craft, by the way, was founded in 1874. Now, for your, you know, your 
British listeners, they, 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 that may not seem very old, but certainly in the United States, these are fabulously iconic brands with great heritage. And so we were able to buy um, the Indian motorcycle trademarks in a bankruptcy auction in um, 2005. And so that was four years after we bought Chris Craft. Um, you so, so you just bought the trademarks? We just bought the trademarks. So you know, Chris Craft at that point was growing. You know, we'd bedded it down. We'd started off with an empty factory. We'd hired employees. We had designed new boats. We'd started to rebuild the dealer network. And although you know, we could have happily spent uh, all our time with Chris Craft, we felt the opportunity to buy Indian was too good to be true and too good to let go. So um, the bankruptcy, it was a bankruptcy auction, um, a very strange procedure called an assignment for the benefit of creditors. It's a situation where there had been a private equity firm involved. They had spent over $200 million with Indian. Um, they couldn't qualify for a Chapter 11. They couldn't even qualify for a Chapter 7 bankruptcy process. So they had this weird process where they basically appoint a trustee and say, whatever you can get for the assets, take it and then just pay the creditors uh, whatever is available. And I remember it was a Friday afternoon and the uh, trustee running the bankruptcy said, look, we want not only bids, but we want a payment um, for the actual brand, which we will return to you uh, if you're not the winning bidder. And by the way, we can give you no guarantee as to ownership of the trademarks. <laughs> so here we were buying a company, a trademark, yeah. um, not even a factory, no hard yeah. assets. These were just the, the trademarks. Uh, with a bankruptcy um, trustee telling us that he wouldn't even guarantee that if we won it, we actually own the trademark. Yeah. So a pretty hairy deal. And this has been, I said, a trademark of, sorry, this has been a sort of typical of, of some of the transactions I've done where I've, I've always been willing to do stuff that maybe others didn't yep. think were very sensible. And um, so I wired the money on a Friday. I'd been told the auction was on a Tuesday. And much to my horror, I get a call at 11 o'clock at night on, on that same Friday saying, Mr. Julius, um, you're the winner of the auction. And I said, well, what do you mean? I thought the auction was next Tuesday. And they said, well, no one else pitched up. And so here I am now, we're the owner of this trademark. I'm wondering, gosh, what is it that um, I don't know that everyone yeah. else knows? Anyway, we, um, we took this trademark and then spent a couple of years really trying to figure out all right, what do we do with this, this trademark? Should we just use it to make T-shirts? Yep. Or yep. should we actually use it to build a real business? Because it, was a very, it is a very well-known brand in the US, isn't it? It's a hugely well-known brand in the US. And uh, we decided after literally two years of, I mean, I, I traveled to China, to Japan. I was speaking to the big four in Japan to see if it was worth my while buying engines from mm -hmm. Yamaha, Suzuki, Honda. Uh, and the others or whether I should buy it from China and I came back saying no if we're going to be a serious motorcycle brand we can't buy the engine from a third party yeah. we've got to make our own engine and this was a very different challenge I mean a far more complex challenge than we'd ever had even a Chris Craft or Reva because making an engine is a completely different ball game I mean you're building a motorcycle from scratch you're building you? a motorcycle from scratch you know in the boat manufacturing business you're you know, you're designing the boats, 
you are having the tooling made for the you know for the for the hulls and decks and small parts of the boat you're doing a lot of the cabinetry work but ultimately you're buying an engine from yep. a third party it comes in a box in our case it was coming from from mercury or it was coming from volvo or it was coming from yamaha um, in the technology risk was somebody else's uh, at indian we assumed all the responsibility for that risk and you know it was very clear that we were taking a very big bet on that um, we decided um, in 2006 to get cracking. We hired a team of about 30 engineers from Harley-Davidson and Polaris and a couple of other places. And we created literally a skunk works. Mm -hmm. We bought a factory just west of um, Charlotte, North Carolina, a place called Kings Mountain. And um, we, bought, we, we bought an old um, uh, Scott Paper Warehouse, which we converted into a full manufacturing facility. Um, we set our engineers to work, and from scratch in two and a half years, we built the bike that you can see here in my study, which has uh, a PowerPlus 105 uh, air-cooled V45 uh, engine with um, its 1,720cc. It's a big beast. Yeah. It's a beautiful beast. Um, with all of the you know the best fit and finish that we could muster, fantastic quality of paint, you know uh, leather seats, leather saddle bags, not vinyl. You know you can see the iconic fender, the big fender, which is so typical of Indian motorcycles. Solid glass Indian headdress, which illuminates when you turn mm -hmm. the lights on. Um, this is, in my opinion, as close as you get to static art as there is there. I mean, this is it's, it it's a lovely beautiful. object. Yeah. And we did the same philosophy with Chris Craft. We were determined you know, to build a beautiful object because when you think about high-end bikes or high-end boats, no one needs a boat, no one yeah. needs a bike. These are objects of desire. They're very much, they're emotional objects. So you either trigger that gotta have it urge or, or you don't trigger it. Um, there's no rational reason for any, any of these objects. Um, and so, now, I suppose that goes to the heart of what I love most in, in these projects, which is designing lovely objects and then making them. So how would you then go about developing a dealer network to sell your motorcycles? I mean, in, in many ways, if I look back at Chris Craft, at Indian or at Reva, hard as it is to de develop and design new product, um, the biggest challenge is not just to design it or develop it, uh, it, and manufacture it, but the, the, the hardest element is building a dealer network. These mm -hmm. are all objects that historically are not sold direct to consumer. Yeah. I mean, although you know we've seen recently companies like Tesla have yep. tried to do that, but these are big, complex objects that require you know support from um, the manufacturer through a dealer network, and you can't expect someone buying a big, expensive boat to travel ten hours to get it fixed. Yeah. You know, in the U.S. You've got a very demanding consumer. They won't go more than an hour or two away to their nearest dealer. So building that network, you know, takes frankly decades. Because I guess you have to persuade the distributor. Also, I guess something moves out of his roster or her roster to to put something in there, and you have to prove that you're a sustainable business and going to be there. Absolutely, because so. the dealers are independent business people, um, who um, are either monobrand or multi-brand. They uh, you know, they have to have a physical facility 
you know, ideally a beautiful facility. If you care about, you know, here we are designing lovely product. We want to make sure it's yeah. displayed properly. So they need to have a proper premises. They need to have uh, proper technicians to support the product. They need to have what's known in the U.S. as floor plan, which is, you know, financing from a bank to actually have your range of product on display. They have to be approved by the bank, and we, as the supplier to the dealer, need to be approved by any bank mm -hmm. that's supplying them with floor plan finance. So it's you know you've got to check a lot of boxes to find dealers that you know buy into your brand, will support yeah. your brand, will you know from from a sales point of view and from a, a technical support point of view. And that is just that's that's a time-consuming process. And I guess in your experience, way before social media or any form of sort of absolutely. In internet, absolutely, you know, key part is supporting dealer events. Uh, going to all the big shows, whether it's, you know, in the States, it's the Miami Boat Show, it's the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show. In Europe, it could have been, you know, the Cannes Boat Show, the Genoa Boat Show, the Dusseldorf Boat Show. And, and you're doing boat shows. We were doing something like 200 boat shows a year across the world, you know, from, from Shanghai to Mumbai. I mean, it, this, is a, this is a global business. What's lovely is that these brands are globally recognized. Yes. Yeah. So... You know, that, the, the story, the, the adventure that we had with Indian, the adventure that we had with Chris Craft, the adventure that we had with Reva, where you've got these glorious brands, you fall in love with them. They become, they become almost your children. I, I guess that's why you have the first motorcycle in your study, isn't it? Because well, I do. We have VIN number 0001 uh, here, nearly 400 kilos of bike. Um, right across from my, my, my desk, which is a source of just joy every day as I look at it. Um, that, that's what's wonderful about creating these objects. They're highly physical. And um, much as I, I'm fascinated by finance and by investing, there's nothing quite like creating an object. So when did you come to sell Indian then? How, how did that come about? Well, Indian, um, we sold to Polaris Industries, which is a publicly listed power sport company in the States. They, we sold it to them in 2011. They are, you know, they're very big in the passport industry. They make, they make, you know, personal watercraft, um, quad bikes, quad and bikes, gaiters, and yeah, um, yeah. And um, they had a motorcycle brand called Victory, which was a brand new motorcycle brand, technically perfect, but with no real brand equity. And predictably, they wanted a, a brand that had real soul and heritage. And if you speak to any Harley owner member or HOG, mm -hmm. Harley Owners Group, uh, which is a big group, over a million members of it, they will say that the only other brand that they have any real respect for was Indian Motorcycle, even though this was a brand that had gone bankrupt, that had had you know, a lot of mishaps in the past. And um, so it, it, was, it was very clear to us that this had real legs. And did you look to to sell or did, did Polaris come to you? No, Polaris, you know, came to us. They were, they were, you know, interested in the brand for the reasons I said, that they, they recognized that, you know, a, a new brand like Victory was, was, it was a tough market to gain yeah. share. It really was no different to a Kawasaki, a Yamaha, whereas Indian had real American heritage and was the only company that could really take on Harley. And in fact, the company today, I think, does about eight, nine hundred million dollars in sales. Wow. And most of that has come out of the backside of Indian. And I guess they would have had a, a very wide distributor network and generally they could have sold the product through there. Absolutely. Through their they did. In channels. fact, they shut down Victory, yeah. I think, uh, three years, two years after we sold them Indian. Um, and they focused solely on Indian motorcycle. So how long was it from, from 
zero 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 one to to selling. How long? What was the what was the I journey? I think it there? was seven years, seven years, seven great years. I mean, this is a company, you know, uh, it, it, that that I. In a way, I wish I never sold it. This is a company that, but the same is true of all the other brands. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is a company that could have kept growing. Huge opportunity, not only in the heavy cruiser segment, which is where we focused with the uh, Indian motorcycle chief, but there were a whole bunch of other categories that I felt we could have got into. Everything from scooters to off-road bikes to, you know, sport bikes. Um, something which Harley Davidson had never really had the courage yes. to get into those segments, yeah. and for the life of me, I couldn't understand why they didn't. Uh, now they are actually getting into that, the segment, but you know it's been very recent. Um, they always felt that their brand was only a heavyweight cruiser brand, which was just you know I never thought that was the case. Um, Chris Craft we kept for nearly uh, 19 years, and we sold that in 2018 to Winnebago Industries, which is a publicly listed American manufacturer of what is known as recreational vehicles, yep. RVs, yep. which are what we call caravans and motorized homes. Um, and uh, how's it how's it fared since since it has gone from strength to strength? Right. Um, it the company has grown considerably um, since we sold it in 2018. Ironically, it was turbocharged by COVID because during COVID, sales of what we call caravans and motorized yeah. homes and boats went through the roof. Yeah. Uh, as people wanted to spend time with their family in a safe, yeah. isolated environment. And so it's been some great years for, for both of those product categories. Actually, all three, motorcycles, power boats, and caravans. You must have a very, you must be very proud to think that these are products and businesses that you sort of let, you've either founded or bought and turned around and have now all of them been doing very, very well. Great pride. I mean, it's it's... It, it's immensely um, enjoyable to think that these are brands that, you know, Indian was dead when, when, when I bought it. Um, you know, it's thanks to, you know, our efforts, um, Steve and myself and the team, that we, you know, this business is alive mm. today and thriving with a great corporate owner. Uh, and the same is true of Chris Craft. You know, not only did we bring these brands alive from the dead, and develop them, but we then managed to leave them in the hands of corporate owners, not yeah. private equity owners, yeah. where you knew they were going to be resold. I mean, they, they have now long-term homes um, in companies that have a real interest in, in the category. So nothing currently in the portfolio? Nothing in the portfolio, looking around um, for, for opportunities. There are always opportunities. I think that the time now is quite interesting with interest rates uh, you know, high, um, possibly still rising. Um, you know, consumer spend is down, mm -hmm. and opportunities always around when consumer confidence is low, when interest rates are high. Who knows? Um, iconic brands are not like trains that pass through a station every five minutes. Yep. Um, they are very irregular. So you know, I could be waiting for five years, ten years before another opportunity arises. Um, you, you never know. You never know. But you're keen to do something more. I think I'm still too too young, uh, although my children might think otherwise, um, to hang up my boots. So, so if anyone has got an iconic brand they're looking to to sell, then maybe maybe they can come on after the podcast. Absolutely. Now, Stephen, as my regular listeners know, I like to close with three questions. So, if we can take one at a time, 
your greatest inspiration or mentor? I was taught um, classics at Oxford by a wonderful Kiwi, um, a New Zealander called George Corkwell, who was a specialist in uh, Philip of Macedon. And um, he was a, was a wonderful man uh, who took me under his wing. He was six foot four, used to wear plus fours, and was um, at university college. It wasn't my college, I was at Morden, but I would do my Greek history there. And he became a very dear friend, and he was a man who had a, an incredible integrity, an incredible sense of loyalty to those um, who were friends of his, and he gave me a vision of what a good man uh, mm -hmm. meant in so many subtle ways that are difficult to communicate maybe during this interview. But he remained a friend until he died only a couple of years ago, age 99, 98. And he was a, a great source of, of inspiration to me. Um, and uh, I still, you know, pick up the odd text um, from my days when he taught me. Yeah. And uh, would like to do much more of that. In fact, you know, picking up my Greek and Latin texts is on my bucket list, mm -hmm. assuming I can remember any of my Greek, let alone my Latin. And then a book which has inspired you. Well, um, obviously, I'd, I'd have to be, uh, I'd have to re reference, um, you know, the Odyssey by Homer. Yep. One of um, one of the greats for anyone interested in classics. Um, I suppose he was in many ways an example of um, a man who prized freedom. And, uh, you know, I, if, if you had to ask me what was um, important to me, I'd say, you know, be your own man. I think you were going to ask me a question about what advice I might give. Yeah. Um, be your own man is probably the, the biggest, or be your own woman, or be your own person is probably the advice I, I would give my own children and anyone else that sought my advice. Um, and, I suppose and your, your career, you've lived by that, by ste stepping away from, from corporate world and doing things on, on your own and being your own man. Um, yes, I mean, for better or for worse, I'm not saying it's been a particularly easy path. I mean, I, I suspect there are easier ways um, to, to, to make a living. Uh, the highs are great and the lows are miserable and you're, 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 you're all alone when mm -hmm. you're having those lows, um, but I don't really know any other way. Um, I'm often told that at this stage of my life I'm probably totally unemployable. Um, this is, maybe that's true, um, but I think it's, it's the only way I know. And I think that this combination of being your own man, being involved in creative industries, building real objects with real teams of people, um, is, is rather special. Uh, it's not particularly, certainly if you live in central London as I do now, around a dinner party, um, there are not too many people around the table that make uh, objects, but sure. uh, it's certainly given me a huge amount of pleasure. Um, but going back to books, yeah, I mean, I, the, I, I referenced, uh, you know, uh, The Odyssey. Um, I'm reading a great book now called La Serenissima, um, which is by a man called Jonathan Keats, which is a history of Venice, which I'm finding intriguing. Um, I really need to do a much more reading than I've ever done in the past. Yeah. And I think that's one of my regrets, and I'm going to try and redress it. That makes a lot of sense. And then, as you alluded to, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career to follow in your footsteps? 
And I, I mentioned one, one, one small piece of advice, which was be your own person. But I suppose the one that I give most frequently to my children is, um, look, life has many um, ups and downs. And the only way I've learned to get through those ups and downs, moments of anguish, moments of joy, but mainly anguish, is, is to keep putting one foot in front of another. It, it's not particularly uh, philosophical. It's not particularly insightful. But it's a very concrete way of saying, I've always found action was a great therapy in, in, in my low moments. And by action, I, I mean, you know, keep moving forward, yeah. keep putting one foot, even just one centimeter in front of the next one. It doesn't have to be a meter in front of it. And that if you can just keep plodding ahead, it's amazing how suddenly the sun rises again, the rain stop, and the world gets better. Um, and so that probably would be um, a piece of advice. There, there are many others, but you know, that, that's a probably advice that's already been given by many, many other people. Um, you know. I quite liked in, in, our, in our preamble, you mentioned you thought this one foot in front of the other was very much like compounding. Absolutely. The power of compounding. You're better off doing 5 6% per annum year in, year out. That's a, a Warren Buffett uh, you know, line, uh, and he's another great hero of mine, as indeed he is of probably most of the investment community. Exactly right. Exactly um, right. But, you know, compounding is the key to successful investing. Yeah. Each step, compounding that return. Absolutely. Stephen, how can listeners get in touch with you? Gosh, um, well, I'm, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I've taken down my website. Um, I think probably that's the, yeah. the best way. Yeah, that's a, it's a very and make very reference good. to the fact that we were they heard this podcast so at least I know who's approaching me exactly Stephen this has been incredible thank you very much for your time this afternoon not at all it's been a pleasure speaking to you Nick thanks for listening to Different Perspective a Zeus podcast if you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts see you next time